And so I found myself having to sneak in, weave through checkpoints and barriers, and risk my life in order to be able to worship the God I love. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today I'm speaking with Sahar Kamsia from the studios of BYU-Idaho Radio in Rexburg, Idaho, where she teaches math. Sahar, thank you for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you for having me. Sahar, you were born in Jerusalem and then found yourself later living not very far away at all, but unable to return to Jerusalem when you wanted to. Can you tell me the first time that you realized that you were living in a place where the laws were different for different people? Thank you. I grew up in Beit Sahor, and actually, when I was growing up, it was fairly easy to travel throughout the land. Uh, there weren't any checkpoints or walls or any restrictions. But when I became a teenager, things started to to escalate, and walls and checkpoints began to separate us from places that we've grown to love, like the sea and like Jerusalem, the city that I love very much. And actually, after I joined the LDS church, I found that the LDS branch, which was in Jerusalem, was kind of out of reach because I lived in, in the West Bank and therefore was not allowed to go to Jerusalem. And so I found myself having to sneak in, weave through checkpoints and barriers and risk my life in order to be able to worship the God I love and to be able to join the saints in, in Jerusalem and partake of the sacrament. And right now, as, as we hear on the news about President Trump kind of declaring Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, it also my heart aches for the Palestinian people that are over there, and especially those that are Muslims that consider the holy site in Jerusalem as one of their, their holiest sites and that are unable to go there and to worship their God. And so I hope that as people hear about all the separation that's happening in my country, that that will motivate nations to kind of be more open and, and kind of allow people to practice freely their religion. I wonder if you would take us back to when you were a child and the place of religion in your home or in church where you attended. What do you recall? So my family is Greek Orthodox, and actually my parents were not particularly religious. They did believe in God. We went to a Greek Orthodox church, but we didn't go to church very often. I actually didn't learn about God from my parents. I actually learned about God from uh, my religion teacher when I, when I was a, a child in my elementary school, and, and I admired her, and she taught me the scriptures, and, and we memorized scriptures and talked about them, and, and it's very different. And the reason I didn't actually connect with my faith back then is because every time I went to church, I didn't learn much from it. It was very structured, and the priest would kind of recite things from the Bible and kind of sing it out. And to me, I, there, I had a lot of questions in my mind, um, some things like, well, why is God kind of causing pain to the Palestinian people? Why is life so difficult, and why does a loving God kind of allow injustices to happen? Those questions nobody answered to me, and I 
quite didn't understand how the atonement and how the gospel kind of related to me. So it was kind of very distant. And if I recall, as a teenager, you actually became quite depressed and maybe even a bit desperate. Yeah, I did. I was very depressed and actually even considered becoming a suicide bomber because I decided that that would be the easy way to end my life. I really, I prayed day and night for Heavenly Father to end my life. I was that desperate. Just watching my people suffer, watching demonstrations, watching my family members get arrested and and tortured in prison and some some of my friends getting shot and things were just hard businesses were closed schools were closed so we had nothing we had no hope and we were pretty miserable so it was pretty difficult as i was growing up what changed your mindset um learning about the gospel uh when i got to BYU i I wasn't really interested in learning more because I thought, you know, I believe in God, so I don't really need anything else. But one day, as my friends were listening to conference, they told me that a prophet was going to speak, and I was kind of curious. I'm like, well, what does a prophet look like? I'd like to see. So I sat in and I listened to some of the speakers of General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and One thing that touched me was actually a speaker referring to my country as Palestine. And everybody here in the U.S. refers to it as Israel. And right now, as you see, you know, they're recognizing even its capital as Jerusalem. But to me, that meant something that a leader of a church would recognize my right as a Palestinian to to kind of a Palestinian state. And I was interested in the church that triggered my interest. I said, well, this can't be a bad church. There must be something good here. And I asked my friend to tell me about her church. And my friend Shay basically told me everything. She started with the creation of Adam and uh, (laughs) the fall and the restoration and everything. And, And to me, it was like Shay was putting pieces of a puzzle together because my faith was kind of based on little bits and pieces of information, and I never, ever saw the whole picture. I felt that, you know, when people would tell me that Christ died for me, that didn't make any sense to me. Like, well, why would I care that someone died 2,000 years ago? It didn't click. The reason of the atonement and and why we have trials and why we're here on earth and all that just didn't click until she explained it. And it just made sense. And that's where I started to get interested in the church and learn about it. At what point did you start to feel like you had some sort of a personal connection with God or that God might actually even be interested in your life? Um, So I actually always believed in God. I always knew that he was there and I always knew that he listened to my prayers. My only two things that I didn't believe is, number one, he can actually answer my prayer or do what I request. And the other thing is that I didn't realize that he could speak, that I thought he was just silent. He would just listen silently there and he wouldn't talk to us. And when I was at BYU, people would tell me, you know, I prayed about this or, you know, and, and it just seemed strange to me a little bit. And And I decided to try it, you know, experiment upon the word. So I decided to just try to pray. And, you know, I would have a friend maybe that has a test and I would pray that they would do well. And sometimes it happened and I'm like, oh, that must be a coincidence. 
But after a few coincidences, I started to realize, oh, God does listen and he does answer. And and when I started to understand how the Holy Ghost communicates with us, I actually started to realize, oh, he does speak um, and we can hear his voice and he does tell us things and prompt us to do things. And so over the years, that has grown because right now he answers every prayer that that I utter. He speaks to me often. And so, yeah. You talked about asking as a teenager, why does God allow bad things to happen? Mm-hmm. The things that were going on because of the circumstances and the examples you gave, it would be very easy to be bitter. And mm-hmm. many people are. Yeah. How has that worked for you? Well, there's two pieces to that. If I want to relate my kind of anger back when I was living in Palestine, it was hard because I actually did develop hate for the Israeli soldiers. They shot a student at the university that I was studying at, and they actually didn't allow him to be taken to a hospital. So I kind of developed this anger. And at some point when I was trying to cross the checkpoint, the soldier forbade me to enter because I was trying to go to church, and he said I wasn't allowed, and I was angry. But then I heard the words of the Savior, love your enemies. And I knew that the Savior was commanding me to love my enemies. He was asking me to let go of that anger, and I actually personally could not do it. I could not forgive. I could not let go. And it took me a while until I finally ran into a scripture in Moroni 748 where it says, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that you will be filled with this love. And that's when I decided that I realized that Heavenly Father is the one who can help me forgive and let go. And I went to him in prayer and fasting, and and he was able to heal my heart and help me forgive and love my enemies and let go of that. And that's been liberating to me in my life because as I watch injustices and as I watch bad things happen, I normally am able to separate the person from the act. And so I hate the bad acts that people do, but the person is still a child of God and and the person is someone worthy of love. The other piece is that I discovered that as long as you're living according to the commandments and if you have the Holy Ghost with you, trials are different. And actually, it was shocking to me because I grew up in Palestine being miserable. And after I joined the church and went back home, I expected to be miserable, but I wasn't. I was happy. Uh, The situation didn't change. Just me, I changed. My heart changed. And, And as I was trying to sneak in to get to church, get shot at a lot of times, and, you know, my family not speaking to me every weekend because I went to church. Things were really, really hard. But as I look back, I would say, well, the 12 years that I was sneaking in to get to church were the happiest 12 years of my life. And it's because I had the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, and I had the support of my Heavenly Father. And so I've come to realize that You know, trials are there for a reason. I mean, that's why we're here on earth. We're here to be tried and tested. It's not that Heavenly Father doesn't love us. It's that he does. And that's why he allows things to happen, because he wants us to grow and learn and become more like him. And once I came to realize that, everything was okay. Because no matter what happens, I knew that God loved me. And I knew that no matter how hard the trial 
he knew of it and he could stop it if he wanted to because he had all power, but he chooses not to. And because he chooses not to, that means that this must be something that's going to help me grow and that's going to be for my good. And once I came to realize that, then it made sense. I mean, all the trials and difficulties actually made sense. I'm wondering if you feel or if you have come to feel over time some sort of sense of mission about what you're doing. Do you feel that God has a particular purpose for who you are, where you were born, and what you're doing? I think he definitely does, and I think he has a mission for every one of us. And sometimes we don't see it, and sometimes we're kind of going around in the dark trying to wonder what I'm doing and where I'm going and what's going on. But there's been very few moments in my life where Heavenly Father has allowed me to see why. Because when I joined the church at BYU, I actually intended to stay in the U.S. Because I'm like, things are going to be really hard at home. Do I really want to go back? But I felt that I should, and I didn't know why. I actually, at the time, like, Heavenly Father, why do you want me to be miserable again? Because I was miserable there, and I don't want to go back. But I've seen how my presence there has affected the lives of many and how it affected me. I mean, personally, I wouldn't be the person I am right now if I didn't have those many, many years of trial and difficulty that I had in living in the Holy Land. I'll share a little bit is, you know, when I when I was able to go to church, I was called as the Relief Society president. And um, because I was the only Palestinian member who was able to go to church, I often brought up Palestinian members in word council, and we talked about it, and we discussed what we can do to help Palestinian members. And finally, it was decided that we would bring the church to them because they can't obviously go to church. And so we started having small meetings in Bethlehem, and I was the only one who spoke Arabic and English, and so I was able to do lessons and help the members there and and just... Over the months, things developed, and now we have an actual Bethlehem branch. We have a church building there that members meet and partake of the sacrament, and they have primary. And And I don't want to say it's me, but I, I want to say that if we're obedient to Heavenly Father, He uses us as a tool to help His work move forward. And sometimes I feel like each of us kind of holds this piece of a puzzle and Heavenly Father is kind of directing us where to place it, but we don't know because we can't see the whole picture. Mm. But sometimes in our lives, he allows us the honor to step back and look at the picture. And we see why our peace was essential, because without our peace, the picture is just never going to be complete. You know, I'm picturing you in Beit Zahur, which is very close, a neighbor to Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you would take a minute for those of us who only know of Bethlehem at Christmas time when we sing O Little Town of Bethlehem mm -hmm. and kind of describe the area. What memories do you have, either as a child just in that area or what was it like celebrating Christmas in the very place those events happened? So our towns are actually very small and very densely populated, especially now with the wall surrounding our cities. Um, we can't expand very much, so mostly very densely populated. A lot of people don't move around. So actually, my family has been in my town for generations. And uh, when we build houses, we normally build houses next to our relatives' houses. So I have a, an uncle that lives next door and a cousin that lives 
next to him and I have my brother that lives upstairs. So kind of we we stay close to family. We played in the city just up and down those hills and there aren't any planes in Judea, by the way. So when it says far, <laughs> far away in Judea's plains, it's it's very hilly. <laughs> There's lots of hills. So you go up and down those hills. We played on the hills as children. Me and my cousin would just go up, explore the caves and um, go up the hills. And it was just fun. And and when I was a child, like I said, the, there weren't any restrictions. So we'd, we would go to the Dead Sea. We would go to the sea and swim in the Mediterranean Sea. And, and that was just enjoyable. We just loved playing in the water. Christmas is kind of a very special time in Bethlehem. It's different than anything you would ever experience. Families have a day. So during Christmas, they get together with family members. And when I talk about family get-togethers, it's probably not something that you would think, because my family has about a thousand plus members. So we get together in one place, and it's usually a big hall that we rent because there's a thousand members plus. So it's a lot of people. But most of the celebrations in Bethlehem actually happen the day before Christmas, which is kind of the day that they say the angel appeared to the shepherds. So it's Christmas Eve and where the shepherds, you know, were abiding that night. But, well, they have a huge tree that they decorate in Manger Square, right by the Church of Nativity. They have a big celebration to light the tree, but that's before. But on Christmas Eve, what they do is they have the patriarch come from Jerusalem with all his priests and people meet him in Manger Square. Like almost everybody gathers up in Manger Square. They have a big parade of the Boy and Girl Scouts that go and march and play the drums and, and they kind of meet this patriarch that comes. And then they go into the church and they have a service there. And then at that night, there's a lot of activities going on. We have choirs that come from all over the world and sing in Manger Square. We have people that have activities at the Shepherd's Field where they sing hymns and light a fire. There's just lots of things for the kids. You could find anything <laughs> to do. So mm. it's just really busy. And we have a lot of foreigners that also come to Bethlehem. So it's very crowded. Traffic is horrible, but... Other than that, it's a wonderful time of year. Maybe crowded enough there's not even room in the inn. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That's probably what happened at the time of the Savior, yeah. I've taken tour groups to Bethlehem and on one occasion was able to invite you to come and share your experience as a Palestinian Christian in that Mm -hmm. area. So now you find yourself on the faculty of a university in the United States, and so you have lots of young people, and at that particular school, religious folks at BYU-Idaho. Is there something that you wish you could tell all of those people? I'd love to tell them how blessed they are, and I think sometimes we tend to forget, and I, I do that as well, living here, because life here is so easy compared to everybody else's life. In Bethlehem, we have running water once every two or three weeks. We can't go anywhere. Things are controlled. Uh, You don't have any rights, so they could arrest you and you would have no right for a trial. Uh, So we don't have a lot of the human rights that people here in the U.S. enjoy. And also having a sense of belonging. Like I don't have a citizenship right now. I mean, I could say I'm Palestinian, but... That really is not valid because there's no country called Palestine. So I wish that people in this country would realize how blessed they are 
to be able to just drive to a church building, to be able to just drive to a temple and to be able to have amazing people around them. And also just to be safe. I think that feeling of safety where you know that you can, you know, go in the street and nobody's going to shoot you or arrest you or anything and having, you know, a passport and, you know, being able to raise your flag without having anyone tear it down and bring it down and burn it. And just all these privileges that sometimes we just hot water. I mean, that's getting up in the morning and being able to take a hot shower. I can't do that in Bethlehem where I'm from. It's it's difficult. It's different. A lot of things are just hard. So I just wish people would be more grateful. Thank you. That's a great reminder and a beautiful picture you painted as well of Christmas in Bethlehem. I wonder if we could ask just a little bit about your personal faith life. What are the things that you do on a regular basis that help you feel connected to God? How does that work for you? I try to make sure that I do things daily. I try to not, like if I feel that I don't have time to read as much scripture as I normally do, I at least make sure that I read a little bit so that I do it daily. Uh, I try to pray daily. I try to go to the temple once a week. I also try, you know, to go to my church services and and kind of maybe think about the Savior every now and then because sometimes our lives get busy and uh, we're distracted. I try to keep a journal. I write once a week and I actually have a blog. So things like that that kind of keep me going on a daily basis because uh, when I was in Palestine, I mean, believe it or not, it, it was easier to be obedient and faithful because I had to, because I didn't seem to have another option, because otherwise the alternative was too difficult. And things were so hard that I needed God and I needed to rely on him. And when I came here and found things to be easy, sometimes I tend to be more (laughs) slacking. So I have to kind of try to keep doing things on a daily basis. Otherwise, it gets... Interesting you say uh, to be grateful for the ease, and yet that ease can be a problem in acknowledging God. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I kind of see that there is another reason for trial is, you know, sometimes it helps us remember God and turn to him a lot of times. You have a book coming out at the beginning of 2018, which is called Peace for a Palestinian. I'm wondering, as you have shared your writing, even with publishers or previews, whatever that might be, Are people surprised by the information that you're sharing? Have they not known about the situation of the people you come from? Yes, nobody seems to know about what the Palestinians are going through. The U.S. media seems to share one side of the story. They rarely share Palestinians, what the Palestinians are going through. It's very pro-Israeli, the media and all the news. And so people, when you tell them stuff like that, they're like, I had no idea. I didn't know that this was going on because I do have people that ask me questions. Well, what's the reason for the conflict? I'm like, well, let me tell you. So they just think that we have a country called Palestine and then we have Israel and we're fighting and they don't understand why you're fighting. I'm like, no, well, we had a country called Palestine and it was taken by Israel and People were kicked out of their homes, and we have half of our people are refugees. They're not allowed to come back. But someone who's a Jew anywhere, born anywhere in the world, has the right to go back to live in Israel when a Palestinian who has been there for generations is not allowed now to go back and live in their home country. 
someone like me who was born in Jerusalem is not allowed to go to that city when anyone is allowed, any Jew regardless, is allowed to go there and settle. And so, yeah, it's going to be a surprise to a lot of people, the content of the book. But I really hope that people don't get negative views about the Israelis from my book. My book is my story. It tells the Palestinian side because that's that's my story. It's my life story. It's what I experienced. And and we don't hear that in the news a lot. We don't hear about what's happening to the Palestinians, what the Palestinians are going through. So I think it'll be eye-opening to a lot of people. But I hope that as people read it, they'll have an open mind and and maybe be open to something different than what they've heard their entire life on the media. And you're talking about personal peace that you've achieved, but do you have hope? I'm really not even speaking politically, but do you have hope for people in general to be able to connect with God and to be able to have a sense of peace that will let them live peaceably? Yes, I believe there is. And I've actually, you know, being raised there, I... I was searching for peace in the wrong place, and I actually thought peace was something theoretical and that nobody could feel it because I grew up in a country where, you know, hearing gunshots was normal, you know, seeing someone get shot was normal. So I I didn't think peace was something that you can achieve. But when I learned about the gospel, I realized that you can have personal peace in your life no matter where you are. If you live in a battlefield, then you can still have it. It's... It's something that comes from the Savior, who is the Prince of Peace. I mean, when the Savior was born in Bethlehem, I actually wondered a lot of times, like, why is someone who is called the Prince of Peace deciding to to Mm. be born in this town? (laughs) You know, he created the world. He could have chosen any place to be born in, but he chose Bethlehem, a place of conflict that has had occupation after another. And But I realized the reason he did that is because he wants us to know that peace, true peace, can come through him because he says, you know, peace I live with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. So his peace is is different. I actually experienced that peace one time when there were bombings going on in my town. So there were Israeli helicopters that were bombing some houses in my town. And my family went to the roof to kind of see which places were being targeted because the electricity went out, the phones were dead, so we didn't know. We we had a lot of relatives, as I said, a thousand plus, that were in town. We didn't know if they were okay, so we were trying to check if they were okay, and I was worried, and I was scared, and so I took a flashlight and went down to my room, and I just knelt down and I prayed, and I think I felt the most amazing peace that night, and it wasn't that the electricity came back on. It wasn't that the bombing stopped, but I was able to feel peace amidst all that. And and I think that's the message of the Savior is he brings us peace no matter where we are and what we're doing. As long as we're following him, we can have that. Thank you very much. In the journey of faith through a life, sometimes it, it feels like we experience these highs and then sometimes, and I'm just generalizing, but we may feel a little bit of distance from God. Have you had those times or times when you thought, hmm, I thought I, I believed this, but now I'm not sure? Um, yes, there was a time one year after I joined the church. It was Christmas, and my brother from Texas came to visit, and he really hates the church. He actually spent every day, all day, trying to get me to leave the church. 
He told me that I betrayed my family. He told me that I was being misled, that all the people that were telling me were lying to me. One day, I remember in particular that he was by my bed as I was trying to go sleep, and he did this every night. He was with me from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed, like every day trying to get me to leave the church. And I remember one particular day after he was done, I mean, he kept talking, but I didn't know. I was so confused, and I thought I had a testimony. I really thought that I had a strong testimony, but after he was done with kind of that constant preaching to me that week, I just had no idea what I believed. And so I remember I left my bed and went to the bathroom because it was the only place that I could avoid my brother. And I basically knelt down and prayed. And I and I actually had a little amount of faith left. I even got to the point where I didn't even know God existed anymore. But I remember just kneeling down and saying, God, are you really there? Um And I just remember that night I had the most amazing experience. It's too sacred to share, but I know that God was there. And and I knew he cared about me, and I never doubted then after that. I just knew that he answered my prayer, and he helped me realize that he was there. And so, yeah, sometimes we doubt. We all doubt. But I've come to learn that if we go to the right source, that is Heavenly Father, or the Scriptures— that if we go to the right source, the answer is there. The answer will come. Sahar Kamsia is a Palestinian Arab born in Jerusalem, grew up in Beit Sahur near Bethlehem. She has bachelor's and master's and a Ph.D. from various universities in the States and the Middle East, including Turkey, and currently teaches in the mathematics department at BYU-Idaho. Sahar, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll learn something new about those shepherds in their fields near that little town of Bethlehem and hear from a panel of listeners as they discuss the ideas presented by our guest. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. lot of caves near Bethlehem, and I actually played in those caves. I grew up in Beit Sahor, and Beit Sahor is actually the place where a lot of people think the shepherds were when the angel appeared to them. If you go to one of the shepherds' fields in Beit Sahor, it seems like 
It was a place where people actually lived, not just kept sheep. So there's a lot of caves there that seem to be like places of residence, in addition to a cave that people would have kept their sheep in. And actually, people still keep their sheep in a cave. A lot of people think the stable that Christ was born in is a wooden thing. We don't have wood there, and people don't build things out of wood. It's it's mostly a cave out of stone because we have a lot of caves, just natural, a place where people would have resided. And I actually was listening to a church speaker one day that said, these shepherds were not your everyday ordinary shepherds that the angel appeared to. These were shepherds that were watching over sheep that would be later sacrificed in the temple. And so it was the shepherd's job to kind of choose the right sacrificial lamb to be sacrificed in the temple because they knew the criteria. And that is the reason that the angel appeared to the shepherds is because it was their job. So they were the one who were chosen to testify that this is the correct lamb of God that would be the sacrificial lamb because it was part of their job. And people actually believed them because it was part of what they did for a living is they watched over sheep and they kind of chose the right sacrificial lamb. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wandering love Oh, morning stars together proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on Sahar Kamsia, telling us more about the shepherds in the fields near Bethlehem. And thanks to Sam Payne for playing and singing O Little Town of Bethlehem for us. What would it be like to live and work in the place where your Savior was born? Can you experience peace even in difficult circumstances, even if you believe differently than your immediate family members? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Dana Bourgerie is originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, has taught at BYU for more than 20 years in Asian and Near Eastern languages. He loves to build things in his spare time. His wife, Catherine, is also from Minnesota, a true Midwesterner at heart. She loves to watch and feed the birds and to garden. Roland Laboulet is from Paris, France, pursuing a master's degree in computer science at BYU. He spent the semester teaching computers to learn. Roland's spouse, Sylvia Cutler, is an English master's student at BYU. She's currently studying early modern witchcraft with the hope of one day garnering enough power to become an English professor. I think what struck me immediately, because partly because of the beginning of her story, was she talked about growing up in Bethlehem. And I think for many Christians uh, we, who've never been there, we wonder about that right away. You know, what would it be like to live and be raised in the place that the Savior was born? But also the sort of the context of, of her life there and the difficulty of her life and how that shaped her faith and Christianity. Yeah, I, I found that really, really beautiful. I think that was maybe the most beautiful part of this whole interview was this this vivid picture that she painted of Christmases as a young child and even even beyond Christmas, just the vacations that they would spend by the sea. Uh, and, and I think it gave power to this 
this kind of crisis of identity that she was presenting that, you know, she feels Palestinian and loves Palestine and is clearly very much attached to that as part of her life and yet associates so many painful memories with Palestine as well. I think also when you she talks about having you know, a thousand plus family members coming for these Christmas celebrations and gathering together, when you think about um, your faith, and perhaps if your faith maybe differs in some way from your own families, I think that also can create a very real crisis of identity, particularly thinking just of in terms of family, obviously being such a, a big part of her life. It makes you wonder what struggles she might have gone through in coming to her own terms of how, how she sees God and and conflicting maybe a beautiful relationship with God with fractured relationships with family members who maybe didn't approve of of the way that she saw things. I thought that was that was very touching, but also very very sad. About her brother, you mean coming to her house, and his whole purpose was to dissuade her from her faith. And I'm wondering how much she really knew about her. How many years in was that? Does anyone remember? He said about a year, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's right. A year after she got her faith, and I wonder where he is now. Because that was ninety-seven. But it's also a theme in her whole discussion that you know the crucible she sort of had to go through in so many cases. Partly was the disapproval of her family, moving out of her place of where she grew up, embracing a new church, and all these things. And and she spoke very eloquently, I think, of how to deal with those challenges. This is something that I've I've thought about before quite a bit. Um, th- this idea that religion and, and our relationship with God is something that should to some extent bring peace to our lives. And, and she describes that. And th- this is, I mean, clearly she's on an emotional and a mental and a spiritual level. She's benefited greatly from, from her newfound relationship with God. But at the same time, this is something that has introduced kind of these new difficulties in her life. And you know, how do we deal with that as people? To what extent is our faith worth conflict with, with our family members with, and, and with our friends? And the idea of sort of paying a price for one's faith, I think that was clear in what she was talking about. But her marvelous expression of hope in everything she did, that, that inspired me a lot. I think conflicts in faith I know, raise some kind of interesting questions just from my own experience in life. I've had a lot of interactions with people of other faiths, and, and it, it makes you wonder, you know, where can we find that common ground? And without experience those those conflicts. And I think conflicts arise just because our faith in God or whatever it is that we believe in, uh, those are very real personal feelings. And that relationship is very vital. But amidst those difficulties, I, I remember having a conversation with someone. There was a lot of contention in that relationship. And, and from my side and from his side and, and where we stood in our beliefs and why our belief in God was somehow better. Um, I don't know that anything productive ever came out of those conversations other than maybe later reflecting on it, realizing it's really important to embrace that people have differences of faith and differences of opinion. That's that's okay. And and thinking back on that encounter, I think about it often. I realize, you know, and, and as Sahara was saying that do it with the people who wouldn't let her pass the checkpoint. That she had to remember that those people were children of God, and and seeing people in that light, seeing people that they have their own struggles, they have their own identity, is is really helpful, and I think can be really rewarding as a process of 
coming to terms with your own faith in the context of, of a broader faith community. And I really love that, that, that she focused on that, that people have these different opinions, sometimes violent opinions even, but they still are valuable. They're still worthwhile. And I think that's, that's a great message to take away of helping ourselves to overcome maybe hatred or fear or uncertainty that comes about through other people. I had an experience in Nanjing when we were there this last year, and I took a beginning Chinese class, and there were 13 different countries represented in that class, uh, a lot of Pakistanis, a lot of Muslims. And because of the media, the press that I hear, I had only met one previous Muslim in my life, but I was worried about being accepted by the men. And so I'm sitting with these men, and as we get talking throughout the semester— I become well acquainted with them, and I hear their family's stories. Uh, One was worried about, back home, the bombing going on. I don't remember which country he was from. Someone, his his wife was pregnant. He was very frustrated because she was so sick, and she wasn't doing any work around the house. And I thought, okay, what can we do to solve this? And I'm right in there helping him, saying, I'm sure there must be someone from your mosque who can go and help her during the day. Yes, I think there is. And so... But what I liked about it was that we were so we were so respectful for each other, all of us, and we became rather good friends, and I still am on uh, Facebook and communicate with them. And I was surprised, uh, very pleasantly surprised, that my prejudices and biases were disproved, that they're people just like I'm people, and they have lives and family just like I do, and they're not a they anymore. They're just people. And following up on that, what Sylvia said as well as Catherine, that Part of what she was talking about me, gave me hope that, that it is possible, but also makes us understand that it's not easy sometimes because faith is deeply held, and it's not like you can easily just wipe away the differences. But at the same time, you can find enough common ground to feel a, a love for those people. And sometimes even when you can't find the common ground, I think that was her message as well, that you, mm-hmm. you're still required as a Christian to love and understand people that, that are difficult for you. The story that Catherine just just shared really made me think of Sahar's experience um, when she was talking about kind of one of the purposes or the, one of the missions that she's had in life. She shared her experience being a, a new member of a, of a new church in Palestine and being the only participant of her church who was Palestinian with a larger group and being able to take their congregation and take their service to the Palestinian side, and and she she didn't really dwell on as she she talked about this about the fact that she likely was very different from her her fellow practitioners. I just found the ease with, with which she described that experience to be a stark contrast to the the situation in Israel and Palestine in general. I I just found that that beautiful that she was able to share this this story of you know collaboration without even feeling the need to contextualize it or to talk about difficulties and differences. And I think that that's, that's something that, that's really beautiful about, about our relationship with God because it's, it's something that oftentimes can defy our cultural and racial differences and instead let us focus on really what makes us human. I think that was a paradox in many cases where she talked about thriving in, in adversity. At first she said, she was talking about, well, it's so nice that you have all these good things in the United States where she lives. On the other hand, she several times came back to this idea that she, she found it easier in some ways to, to have faith in a difficult situation and how she grew in that adversity. And I think that, that's something that struck me several times in her conversation. In talking about dealing with people who are difficult and also 
having experiences that are difficult and yet growing stronger because of them, there had been someone in uh, my life that I felt was a thorn in my side. And in this particular situation, I wanted, I was tired of it. And I was blaming the other person for everything because he was so offensive. And yet I prayed about it and I asked, how can I be free of this? The thought came to me to apologize, and I thought, apologize for what? What have I done? And uh, it came to me that I had not treated him as if I cared about him. I was not treating him as I wanted to be treated. Every time he entered my home, I was angry, and I let him know that. So I called this person, and I apologized. And our relationship has changed from that point on. He then opened up about all of his, oh, I'm so sorry that I was so rude this way. And though, even though we're very different and nothing was really solved, uh, we now are on the same page. We care about each other and we can go ahead with the relationship and kind of move beyond, I call them the surface bumps, which so distracted me before. You're listening to a conversation in good faith with a group of listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Sahar Komsiya. Now back to the conversation. I remember Sahar also mentioning um, in this interview that, you know, she had to learn to separate the person from the bad act. And I thought about that and how, how difficult that sometimes could be. It, sometimes you really do want to define that person by how they've wronged you. It, it gives you maybe a sense of peace somehow that, that you can feel vindicated knowing that they are wrong, they're bad, how their behavior is affecting me is is something that, that I can get upset over. And, and I love that you're saying that you have to overlook those differences. It's it's not easy, I think, to, to separate people from, from those bad actions, but then to see them in light of, of your belief, which a lot of belief systems, particularly in God, I think would encourage us to see people the way that God would see them. And and that's certainly not, that's not easy, but I love that Sahar says that, and I think that that so relates to your story as well. One phrase that jumped out at me here was when she talks about bits of a puzzle. I don't know if anybody else noticed mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But that sort of spoke to me in the sense that on one hand you believe, but your whole life is is trying to put those little bits of the puzzle together and be a little better and you know, not understanding everything but understanding enough. And she says, what What do you do if you have crisis of faith? You know, you go to some people you believe and, and care about and who think can help you and find little bits of those, find those puzzle pieces little by little. And I think that was interesting to me as well. I liked uh, that she said, our piece is essential. And uh, when I was a teenager, some man came and spoke to a youth group I was in, and he said, we all have a right to know why we're here and what our purpose is. And that blew me away. I thought, I, I'm a nothing. But he said, it's imperative that you find out and that you don't waste your time here not knowing. And at that point then, I thought, okay, I want to know. I want to know what my purpose is. And the fact that she says, our peace is essential. And that's what she found out. Yeah, and I, I really love how she says um, you know, without your peace, the, the picture isn't complete. But even thinking about every single person as a piece of the puzzle, helping foster communities of people who find and have some sense of where their piece is in that puzzle, I think is so important. Just a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to live in France for the summer and work for an organization that 
visited elderly people who had no family, no connection to anyone. They were essentially alone, pulled up in their apartments at the end of their lives. And I remember going into this one man's apartment and it was such a horrific scene. It was filthy and and musty and hot and dirty. And he told us that he had been a linguist and he'd traveled all over the world and and he'd really accomplished a lot in his life. But then he said that it didn't matter anymore. And that was the sense of his despair. And he was a very bitter man. And And I felt so much sadness that what was it, what happened in his life that made him get toward the end of his life and, and feel that way, that, that he really didn't matter, that his contributions all over the world, every place he traveled, it didn't matter for his identity. And, and it caused him so much sorrow. And so I love this notion of pro- you know, promoting this notion of this puzzle that we really can't have a whole of unless everyone knows that they can participate in it and, and has a role to play. I think that's, that's really important. Yeah, and and I mean, we we kind of started off this little discussion with the thought that she that Sahar had you know considered being a suicide bomber, and the interesting thing is that she didn't she didn't necessarily characterize it as an act of of hatred. It seemed like it was an act of purpose. Mm-hmm. Like she she was you know depressed and unhappy and frustrated, and this would have been a way for her to make a difference, right? Uh, participate in the fight for her people. And I think that that's so interesting that we all intrinsically have this this drive to contribute, to have a purpose, to have meaning. It really says something about maybe our own self-destructive streaks, that they're driven by purpose and, and that we can redirect that energy if we if we come to better understand our own role, whether that's in a in a religious context or even even within a familial or um, even a social context that there's, there's all sorts of places and ways for us to spend whatever life energy we have to spend. Maybe think um, people of faith or not of faith all seem to care about purpose. They tend to seek that, and maybe they seek it in faith, maybe they seek it in other ways, but maybe think that's, that's so universal to human experience. I remembered in the beginning she said, why does God allow bad things to happen? And that is something that is a question We've heard over and over, and we couldn't be honest if we didn't say we wanted ourselves sometimes. Why do these things happen? Why to me? Why to anybody? And I remember some good friends of ours was in an accident. She suffered greatly for it. And about the same time, I was going to cross the street in my car, and I just had this, I couldn't move. I couldn't move at all. It was like everything just stopped, and a car roared through the light, and I knew I, w- I would have been killed. And I was very grateful for being alive and seeing this miracle, um, and yet I couldn't help but to feel the sadness. Why didn't this same miracle happen for my friend? Why did she have to suffer so much? It really wasn't fair. And yet I liked how she said, he chooses not to change or remove the trial, so it must be his will. It must be okay to happen. That, And then she goes on to say how much she has learned from her trials. I guess if it were my wish, I would remove so many trials. Maybe I wouldn't grow. My friends wouldn't grow. Uh, maybe we'd be happy. I feel like we would be, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, it was interesting talking about trial in a faith context for her, that the absence of trial often leads to the absence of faith, strangely enough. And I, I thought that was an interesting example. I'm sure 
a lot of people who are believers uh, can become complacent, uh, particularly if you want to believe in a higher power. If you don't need help, you sometimes don't need that higher power, and that that relationship falters. But it's an interesting perspective on trials that obviously none of us want them, but uh, in a way, they they do lead us to something greater than ourselves. And whether they're necessary or not is you know, up for us to decide. But to look at trials in that context, the way that, that she described them as, as faith-promoting almost, that's an interesting way to relate to God and, and to find out what it is that you believe in or what it is that you think will help you get through those trials. Early on when I, when I first affiliated with the LDS Church, uh, just shortly after my mother was diagnosed with a brain tumor and went in the hospital, and I remember at the time praying very hard, and I was, you know, I, I wasn't very, I was sort of new to faith generally. I grew up in a family that wasn't really a believing family of anything. And I remember thinking this, I could apply my faith and help her, pray for her to be whole and to heal. And, and she didn't, she passed away. And it was a kind of a early time in my own faith that, that I struggled with that, that why is that the case? Wouldn't it have been wonderful if she had been healed? Uh, but she wasn't. I had to think a long and hard time about that, and I really did try my own faith, not having things go the way you think they should. But in the end, uh, it's a feeling of acceptance, and you have to sort of uh, resignation to God and not uh, trying to understand, think that you understand everything. Sahar was saying, you know, sometimes you just leave it in God's hands, and that's part of being a person of faith, I think. Yeah, I, I really relate to this idea of resignation to God. One moment from Sahar's interview that, that I thought resonated with me was her experience when her brother was um, kind of aggressively questioning her faith, um, and she talked about going into the bathroom and kneeling down and praying. As she was describing that, she said she wasn't even sure that God existed anymore, but she, she had just a, a little bit of faith left. And, and that, that's maybe what resonated with me was this idea of just a little bit of faith, that sometimes you don't really believe in God. It's not a because, it's an in spite of. It's You have all these reasons not to. You go through all these different trials, and yet there's something within you that doesn't want to let that go, that, that wants to believe that just feels right. You know, as we've talked about the fact that trials kind of contextualize our faith and can strengthen it, I think that they kind of bring that to the forefront, that deep down we have kind of this innate connection to God. And I just think that's so paradoxical, but also kind of wonderful. Roland, when I was having this faith in God, I was raised with no belief in God, no knowledge of God at all. And when I was uh, six, we moved to Carmel Valley, I think the most beautiful place on earth. And uh, as we stood up on the hills and watched the fog roll in through the valley, I felt such a yearning in my heart. I thought, and I kept looking up as if I would see some vision of what I didn't know. So as I looked out, I had such a feeling in my heart that I didn't belong here. And what was I doing here? I felt so sad, so empty. Later in my life, I referenced that and thought, no, I, I really don't. This... This isn't necessarily the end. And I like how Sahar had said the personal peace. She didn't used to believe in getting personal peace, but that it comes from the Savior, the Prince of Peace. And the peace he gives is not as the world giveth, but as I giveth. And when she said that, and then she goes, and why was he born in Bethlehem? 
that just made me think in a way I'd never thought before. I thought, why was he born in one of the most troubled places in the world? I really do like how he is the Prince of Peace. It it makes all those Christmas cards make sense to me now. (laughs) Well, especially talking about him being the Prince of Peace in a place where there is so much tension. She even says that she felt peace amidst bombings, that there were bombings and horrible things going on around her that, that day that she went and knelt and prayed and, and looked for peace. And, and it's not like that stopped even, but that she could feel peace in a place of such conflict. I think that's why so many people turn to God or a belief in God. It's giving you any chance of having peace, um, knowing maybe that your surroundings might not change Um But that's a a beautiful thing to remember, that you can still find peace in utter turmoil, uh, which is is what her belief provided her. And that's a profound thing to think about, that that you can generate that peace through your belief and and the comfort that comes through it. In fact, I think what was clear from what she was talking about, that personal peace is the only kind of peace. Uh, not not just the one one kind of peace, but the only kind in the end. And it made me think maybe that's why Jesus was born there, to teach us that. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists and especially to Sahar Kamsia for sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us anytime, ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find our shows archived online for listening or sharing at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith or subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced with help from Marcus Smith and Christine Knockleby. Thanks to Brandon Isle from BYU-Idaho Radio in Rexburg for engineering assistance. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon right here in Good Faith.